Anyways, you guys are way too serious. <laughs> if I'm going to have to talk, you're going to have to loosen up a wee bit. Anyways, I, uh, I just want to start by thanking uh, Pastor Matt. He, uh, I wasn't going to share this story, not in this setting, not unless he asked me. And I, I just prayed about it. I didn't tell him anything. And, uh, and sure enough, he asked me. And so when he asked me, I said, I, I sure will. If I could help one person not go through what I did, then it's worth it. And um, so I want to thank Pastor Matt and the council. It's kind of a risk to let somebody talk about mental health, and uh, especially somebody like myself who didn't believe it existed. <laughs> I really didn't understand it. And um, anyways, I uh, also want to give a, a little, um, I say, uh, should give my family a bit of grace, especially my wife and my family. That's, it's going to be harder for them to maybe relive some of this stuff and my friends. Um, and if you just think of them as I'm going through this, and um, anyways, it's, um, I, I think I'm ready. Um, I just have to tell my story. I'm trying to read my story. That's, I just try to keep me focused. But anyway, so a little bit about me. Well, I was raised the furthest way you could be probably from a farm. I was a preacher's kid. I was raised in town. I had mom and dad. It was kind of ironic. Uh, get a little bit of echo here. Uh, anyway, it's kind of ironic because uh, my dad was a farmer and, and he turned preacher. And so then I, preacher kid turned farmer, so I guess it's all fair play. And uh, anyways, but I always learned, I always grew up with this knowledge that we had this farm and there was something important about a farm. And anyways, I, uh, I, I tell everybody that I became the farmer because dad was just trying to keep me out of trouble. And that is true. And uh, anyways, so I became a farmer, had absolutely no idea what I was doing. And so uh, I want to start, start, I'm a farmer, and guess what? Uh, there's rocks here. Now, some of you might live in a country or part of this, this great province uh, that doesn't have any rocks. We are not, we have not been given that gift. And so you might be asking yourself, why did Brian put rocks over here? Because these are off of my land. So um, anyways, I'm going to read you a scripture and try to connect the dots for you. I'm going to read the scripture. <laughs> I'm going to read that scripture, Pastor Matt. Thank you. <laughs> so Joshua erected a monument at the Gilgal using the 12 stones that they had taken from the Jordan. And then he told the people of Israel, in the days to come when your children ask their fathers, what are these stones doing here? Tell your children this. Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry, dry ground. So it was two times the sea got parted, well, the sea got parted, it was Red Sea, and then the Jordan River got parted so that they can come through to the Promised Land. So I, I took that as 
Why do we put up monuments? So we remember to tell our stories. And I think that's why I, I, there's a reason for my story. It's not the way I'd planned it, but uh, so that's the monument to get into my story. So I'll just start my story. Uh, by the way, I might have to stutter and, and stop and I gotta get water. I can hardly swallow. So my story starts uh, in the 10th month of my 59th year. And you guys are looking at me and I can see some of you going, so this happened like uh, a long time ago. <laughs> For those people that think that it happened a long time ago, you're free to leave now. <laughs> For those of you that think 59th year, you can not even be 40. I left the paper at the back, and if you sign up, you'll be in my will. <laughs> Anyways, but things were, were exciting times were happening. Uh, so in, in our farm, we've, we've, I've always had two things going on. We had a seed plant and a, and a farm, a grain farm. And uh, so I've got a, the new generations coming on stream. So Tamara stepped up to the plate to uh, lead the charge on the seed plant, and uh, my nephew Mason, he wants to be a farmer. He's also a city kid that's never grown up on a farm, and so uh, so they stood. So think that that's great. Um, got the next generation coming and willing to take you know drive it forward. So those two things made my career, and so I did what I loved, and I loved what I did every day. That I went to work. I loved getting up and go to work because it was, it was just my passion. And I, we had a good team. By then, had, it was getting bigger than just, just Lorna and I. So we had my brother, Darren, and his wife, Shannon. And, and then we've got uh, Tamara and Josh, and then uh, Mason, and my wife and I. But with uh, bigger projects, and there comes more uh, responsibility more stress, and more pressure. And I was uneasy, and I wasn't sure why, and I, was, I knew I didn't want to be the weakest link. I'll take you to a flashback in the 80s. So I was just learning how to farm, and I, I, I learned really what not to do. And, um, and I just about lost the family farm. And so that had not left my mind, and I definitely did not want to be responsible losing a farm and so I didn't want to be the weakest link so in the past what I did is I just worked harder and um, you know I was younger I would go to bed tired I was exhausted but I wake up and I was just wow I can't ready to get at it I was fired and get up and going but this I tried to resort to the same thing and um, and then I noticed that I, wa I wasn't sleeping very good and uh, I couldn't get things off of my brain. And um, so I, I cut down on things like, you know, percolationships. I had to take the time from somewhere if I was going to work harder. And uh, so I, I didn't have as much time for people. And uh, also, you know, we didn't even launch the boat last year. We had bought a boat two years before that and never even launched it once last year ourselves. So um, anyways, but I'm a farmer. I, I can figure this out. So. I had for quite a while been taking uh, over the counter sleep assist pill. 
And so I thought, well, he probably doesn't see for sure, but probably one didn't work, two would. And, uh, and so that kind of worked for a while, but then sleep became a very, very scarce commodity. I was up eight to 10 times a night and uh, I was sleeping, sleeping between one and two hours. And the first, one of the first things I noticed that went was I was very indecisive. I couldn't make decisions. Decisions were really, really difficult. And I was, so when I started to procrastinate, that, that was my way of making a decision. And I just to back up a wee bit, what I wanna say to you, what, as I'm telling my story, if you can identify with any of these, these signs and warnings, I'm just throwing them out there to say, pay attention. There's, there's things going on and your brain's a very complex thing and um, it's trying to tell you something. Well, then I reverted, reverted to something that's called self-criticism. You know that talk we use to motivate ourselves, you know, to get through the tough times, you know, talk like, I hate mistakes, especially mine. I need to be better. I can't believe I did that. I can't fail. No, that's not acceptable. I started declaring that over, over myself. And for the very first time in my life, I seen the glass half empty instead of half full. And I focused on the obstacles and not the opportunities. And all the people around me started seeing the change. And I started seeing the change too, but I just tried to hide it. I didn't want anybody to know. Well, um, October 20th came around. And you know, it was time for my annual pass warranty inspection. I think they call it a physical. <laughs> Anyways, Doc told me my, my blood work was good. And uh, apparently I'm uh, two feet short for my weight. <laughs> Anyways, but otherwise I think he was telling me I was buff. I think that's what he said. And at that point, I thought, do I tell them? I don't, I don't want to ask, but man, I'm not sleeping. And I hadn't told them any of this. I mean, if we don't tell the doctor, how is he supposed to know? But just before I left the room, I said, uh, doc, is there anything you can give me so I can sleep? And he says, oh, sure. And he says, I can give you a, a good sleeping pill. And so I thought, well, fine, I'll, I'll get some sleep. And I didn't want to do it, but I, I thought, oh, it shows weakness, but I, I better. So I, I took the sleeping pill, and I'll tell you what, those babies work. I took them in the bathroom, and I barely made it back to the bed. <laughs> Just boom, it hits you like a sledgehammer. Anyways, and so that, but that, that just worked for a little while. And it, I, I was, um, I was still very anxious. I was very um, indecisive. And anyways, I called the doc again. I said, I wonder if I've got something else besides just let me take this off. Just too quiet, Brian. How many times have you heard that in your life? Yeah. <laughs> you just need to fix it. Just leave it on. Well, if you guys can't hear me, just throw something at me. <laughs> we'll play dog tricks. 
Anyways, so um, so I, I, I phoned the doc and I, I said, I, uh, I think I've got something else going on here too. I said, I, I think I'm, I didn't want to say the word. I didn't want to use that word because that means in my world, I was weak. In my world, as a farmer, you just work harder. In my world, that means you couldn't do it. And I said, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm just anxious. He says, well, you, you're, you're probably dealing with anxiety and depression. No, no, I, I, I can't be. He said, look, he said, are you having trouble making decisions? Yes. Do you, everything make you excited? Yes. He said, you can't focus. No, I can't focus. He said, tell you what, you built up your cortisol levels in your brain, and he says, you're damaging your brain. You're not giving your t brain time to heal, and, and you got no sleep going on. He says, I think it's time to take him. And so I, uh, I took him. I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go on medication. And I thought, oh boy, for a farmer, I don't want anybody to know that. And um, as a dad, of course, as a Christian, I didn't, I didn't want anybody to know. So I thought, boy, it can't get much worse than this. And then it got worse. And how it got worse is then I started having dreams. They were terrifying dreams. I'd, I was back to just sleeping one or two hours a night, and, and I would wake up just absolutely drenched in sweat. Lorna and I, actually, I moved to a, a different room because there was no way she could sleep with me. Otherwise, I was tossing and turning and then having dreams. And then in the middle of those dreams, my one dream that stuck with me is that I wouldn't see May 1st. I wouldn't make the winter. I would, I would die before the snow was gone. At that point, I started focusing on my mistakes, my failures, my past sins. And then I started thinking that I deserved punishment. In fact, I needed death. But that, I just kept to myself. November 1st, all the team came back. They worked in the, the rest of the guys worked in the field, and I was working at the seed plant. They came back to the, to the seed plant, and they soon found out that I was not a very good team member. I was critical. I was indecisive. And I had absolutely no focus. It was decided amongst us that I should take a break. So we'd, we did that. We, Lauren and I, we... Went to Brandon, just rented an Airbnb, and what that re revealed the next step was I couldn't be around public. We went to two places in the public, went to go get some groceries. It was all I could do to be in that grocery store. And we tried to go for coffee, and that was almost a, well, a disaster. So we decided that wasn't a long enough break, so my brother Darren and his wife Shannon, they have a house or a home in Strathmore. So they said, well, why don't you use our place? We're, we're not there right now. And 
So we said, okay, that sounds like a good idea. So we packed up and we headed to Strathmore. And on route to Strathmore, we went 13 Highway to Weyburn and then we were going up Moose Jaw. And I had an anxiety attack. Lorna had never seen me like this before. <laughs> I, I had never seen me like this before. And it, they're, they're nasty. And anyways, um, she says, we're just about to go by Weyburn. Why, why don't you stop? Why don't we stop here in Weyburn and, and see if they can help you out? Well, then another obstacle came in my mind. Are you kidding? Weyburn? I grew up. I was born in Lapland, and I grew up in Whitewood and Lapland, and everybody had the stigma that Weyburn, that, that's where the worst go. That's, that's where the worst of the worst go. Like, I'm not the worst. Like, there's no way I'm going to Weyburn. And, but it, it, it was really bad, so I just said, okay, I'll stop. Maybe they can patch me through or put a sticker on me or something. And, and so I stopped, we stopped in, and they gave me a questionnaire to fill out. And I just, if you had a chance, just to read through, through some of those questions on the questionnaire. Anyways, I went through the questionnaire, and I, I, was, I think I was fairly honest going through, and I got to question number nine. And I slowly circled number three. And then it hit me. I thought, if I hand this sheet in, they're going to keep me here. This is where I don't want to be. And so I said to Laura, I'm out of here. I just picked up the paper and said, let's get going. She said, no, she didn't want me to, but she, she came with me because I wasn't leaving and, or I wasn't backing down. And, and on the way to Strathmore, I admitted to one of the, I had thoughts of suicide, but they were just passing. And obviously, my next thing was I was lying. Lorna, Lorna, she's a, she's, she's a very, very intelligent woman, and she wasn't buying that for a second. So that meant that I needed to find time and space, because she watched me like a hawk. I had a couple of counselors then, so I was, I had Sheila Sakash and. She couldn't make it here this morning, but she, she was really good. And she, she gave me some good, helpful information, some practical information. She works for the Southeast uh, Mental Health District. Actually, she switched jobs now. And then I had a pastor, Pastor Marty in, um, in Regina, and, uh, and he helped me out too. But at that point, I really wasn't taking advice or <laughs> input. I, I didn't. I didn't. I was focused on something else because I was completely negative. Even with the, the good sleeping pills, I was down to two to three hours of sleep. And I was convinced I wouldn't see May the 1st. I was in complete fear by this time, in complete hopelessness. It was only black. I believed I couldn't be helped, and I deserved everything I was going through because I was a fake fraud, and a failure. There was dark changes inside of me. What energized me before paralyzed me. I couldn't, I couldn't,
couldn't be with people. I couldn't talk to people. I couldn't sing. I couldn't praise my God. I didn't want to give. I didn't want to help. I couldn't laugh. In fact, I couldn't even smile. It was an absolutely horrible place to be. We had, uh, so we went from Strathmore to Saskatoon. My best friend is here, Lloyd, and his wife, Michelle, is the one that sang. By the way, she sang that song over me on the other side, which is really cool. Anyways, we'll get to that side. We went to Saskatoon, and I felt safe with Lloyd and Michelle, and so we, we spent some time together, but there was another symptom that came. And that was, I would share something with them, but I would swear them to secrecy. I didn't want anybody to know. I definitely didn't want anybody past them knowing. And I continued to lie. I did not want to share my deepest thoughts. Definitely not. Uh, by this time, I was researching suicide. I thought it was the only answer. All, that I, all I needed was timing. We went home for Christmas, and I wanted to see the kids and grandkids one more time. I didn't want to dishonor them or traumatize them, so I was going to wait till after Christmas. Lorna and I had the best kids and grandkids of the world. Of course, we're the parents and grandparents. What else are we supposed to say, right? Anyways, they're awesome kids and an awesome family. And for Christmas last year, they got together and they gave us a gift that you guys are going to get to see. It was a beautiful gift. Maya had taken this picture in the summertime of all our family. And I looked at that picture when they gave us the gift, and I'm not sure if I smiled or not. I probably tried to fake it. I looked at each one of them, man, those are beautiful people, inside and out. But that guy in the middle, they deserve so much better than him. He was a fake, a fraud, a failure. Tell you what, it doesn't help much when you can't see your notes. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. I got glasses now. So. <laughs> Thank you. Stay tuned. Thank you. They deserve so much more. And that guy in the middle, he needed to die. I had a plan. I couldn't fail. That was, and I just needed opportunity. <coughs> December 30th was my opportunity. Lorna, I had to run to town. Of course, I made an excuse why I needed to stay at home. And she was going to go to Manor and then Carlisle. And let me tell you this in the story. Lorna, like I said, when she was watch watching me like a hawk, she always called back. 
she always called back. She might call two or three times on a trip to town. Well, I had things all in place. As soon as she drove out of the yard, and I took a deep breath and I said, it's time. Failure, failure would be my worst outcome. My mind recalled this story of a young man back in the 80s. He tried to commit suicide with a gun. He must have had second thoughts. He must have pulled the gun down when he pulled the trigger because he grazed the side of his head. The reaction was they called him reload. I said I didn't want to be a reload. So I went to my two-step plan. I took an overdose of sleeping pills. That was just to push me to step number two. And I knew I didn't have much time because they do, they do work fast. So I had a gun set out, had my bullets all set out. I had done that beforehand. I went and test fired the gun. I went to the back of my truck that was in the garage. I knelt on the knelt down so I could use the back mirror or back window as a mirror. Checked the position and the angle of my gun. And I bowed my head. Said, sorry. Sorry to my my God, my wife. My family, my friends. Now I just have to cock the gun and pull the trigger. Reached down and I cocked the, cocked the gun. I was bringing it up to my head. And uh, all of a sudden, the door was going up. The garage door was going up. This can't be. It can't be Laura, because she hasn't called. And she always called. Anyways, I hit the deck, thinking, oh, I, I don't know who's coming in the house. And sure enough, here was Lorna driving in. She went into the house, and she started calling for me. So I uncocked the gun, climbed out of the back of the truck, and now I was trying to create a story for why am I out in the garage? So I um, came up with some stupid story. I was never very good at it. Anyways, but Lauren, I gotta tell you, see in our family now, she's known as affectionately, by the way, as Lauren. And so quite often if you hear us call Lorna, Lauren. We're not being disrespectful at all. It's uh, an affectionate name. Well, Lauren, she's a, she's a great friend. She's my lover, fighter, and a defender of, of good causes, and she's a world-class investigator. <laughs> she didn't buy my stupid story. And I knew my secret would be out. I'd failed. I said, Lorna, you better sit down. And then that's the last of my recollection as the sleeping pills 
Laura says I was still conscious for it, but I, I, I don't remember any of that. Now Lorna's got some, some more to the story that is get, maybe going to get missed in here. But anyways, I woke up in triage, surrounded by my wife, three kids, and their spouses. That was not my plan. I was admitted that night. They said goodbye. And what ensued was the, the longest night of my life. Just before everybody left, I was challenged with a question. Do I want to get better? And I was admitted to the Rayburn General Hospital, a place that I didn't want to be. Well, the next morning, Lauren and Tamara came in the room. And Tamara came right over, and she just laid beside me. She just hugged me and loved me. She told me she didn't need a partner, she needed a dad. She wanted me to hold her like when she was a little girl, but I was so full of shame and guilt. But she just held me and loved me. Just then a friend came in. I guess he had seen Tyson outside in the parking lot. And uh, so he came in and so he encouraged me and told me, you know what? This is good that you're here. And you're in the best hands that I know of. Because the psychiatrist on call today, well, how else can I say it? She's the best. I haven't mentioned that he has a lot of knowledge. At that point, he was the director of nursing and manager of the clinical services in the Weyburn General Hospital. And that is Shannon Akins. He's here today. Thanks, Shannon. He's a longtime friend and someone that I deeply respect. Then there was a Dr. Brony. He came in to assess me and figure out why, what's going on. He definitely could see that I was having mental health issues. And he says, guess what? You're in great hands today. The reason why is a psychiatrist on staff today? Well, I would trust her with my life. In came in Dr. Cooper. That was kind of different. She wasn't wearing a cape. She didn't look like a rock star. She looked normal. What are they supposed to look like? I don't know. I've never seen one before. She, uh, she was calm. She asked really good questions. And she was incredibly compassionate. And then she said something I'll never forget. She said, Brian, if you give me a chance, I'll make a difference, a, a positive difference, a big difference in your life. And then she says, I don't have a magic wand, but with time and your effort, you'll experience a big improvement. Doctor left. And we had a discussion between the three of us. What do we do? We were going to move on to Regina, but if we moved on to Regina, we weren't going to have the best psychiatrist. We we're going to have Dr. Cooper. We decided we'd stay in Weber. 
So the decision was made in December 31st. I was checked into the Weyburn Mental Health Facility by a great male nurse named Chris. Lauren said goodbye. And we would be apart for the 15 longest days of our lives. I, well, this is my 60th year. I was holly, hollow, sorry, empty, dark. Yep. It was officially the worst year of my life. There was no tears, only hopelessness. It was just before the weekend, so I have to wait until after the weekend in, in January uh, 1st. So I didn't see Dr. Cooper again until January the 3rd. And when she first seen me, we went into a different room, and she says, you know, Brian, I'm really glad you're here because now you can get help. And she said, it's a good thing you're here because my heart breaks for the ones I don't get a chance to work with. Once again, she, well, she had, um, she had lots to, to uh, work out with me because I wasn't, uh, I hadn't been eating very well. I'd lost 33 pounds. I was depressed and panicked. So she, just on those meds, she had to work for three or four days to get things balanced. By the way, I've uh, found uh, 55 pounds back. <laughs> they, they work. We've tamed them down a wee bit. <laughs> Anyways, and so she, uh, she did the PHQ-9 form on me too. And she did that every, every session we had. Of course, I got to question number nine and was lying to her too. Was I considering suicide? Or had thoughts of har harming myself? No, very little. That's what I said. She never, she just went on like, she knew, but it was, she's good. Just want to tell you a little bit about the staff there. The staff, they are absolutely gifted and they have a passion to do what they're doing. Some of the staff that I can remember are Chris and Crystal and Amy and there's two Tanyas. That was the day staff. But they, they were the ones that love talking with you. And anyways, there's, they weren't pushing. If you wanted to talk, to talk, they'd talk. If you didn't, they were, they'd just be cordial to you. But they worked in putting tools in the toolbox for you. Something to work with. So when those anxiety attacks hit, well, what can you do? So they taught me things like calm breathing. You know, if you can take five breaths, slow it down to five breaths in a minute. And reduce your heart rate helps. I mean, I mean, they're just. Then PMR, progressive muscle relaxation. Very important for me to try to get to sleep, just try to get things wound down. They taught us mindfulness. And there are so many other things that I could say that, but th those are the ones that stand out in my mind. And then there were. They, I got given a booklet, and uh, which I tried to go through, and 
Well, how did I get here? What's my plan now? How, long, how am I going to make sure it doesn't happen again? Anyways, and then there was this one. If that's in that uh, steps book. Because when I read this one, if you go to the next slide, you can, you can see, and I looked at those nine, I thought, there is no way I have all nine of those in my life. In fact, I probably have about four of them, and they're not evenly divided at all. They're not spaced out, and I think there's, there's a sign, right? And then they were constantly checking on my mood and observing my changes, administering my meds, and they were just really good at what they did. Then there was a support staff. One I really remember is Judy. I had the dubious honor of being the oldest in there. I can tell you on that dubious honor, they also send you for a brain scan and everything. So anyways, that's, that's all good. It just, just part of being part of the oldest. But Judy, she always gave me extra to eat. And uh, not that they didn't feed us. They fed us five times a day. It was, it was unbelievable. But they'd also give me a pill to make me hungry. <laughs> <coughs> what is sad that there was, there's lots of young people in there. Not sad. And the support staff that played games with us and got us resources, that's if you were up to playing games. <coughs> and then my, one of my nurses, Amy and Dr. Cooper, we met on January the 5th. And uh, Dr. Cooper asked me, well, what do I want to do? I couldn't give her an answer. What do I want to do? I, I don't know. So some, something to think on. And then finally, when they, she gave me the, uh, the QH9 form, I answered number nine honestly for her. So that's all I can think about is suicide. She didn't hesitate again. I think she knew then that she could get someone. And then they gave me a handout on perfectionism and self-compassion. See, so you know that I talked about self-criticism? Well, this is kind of the opposite of that. It's self-compassion. And when I was in there, I, I couldn't do anything in terms of I couldn't watch TV. I tried to read comic books. I tried to read Reader's Digest. I tried to read a book. Um, Lorna brought me stuff and... I, I just, I couldn't read anything. I could barely watch a little bit of TV. But I, the Lord was gracious to me because one thing I could read was the handouts. So I read the handouts. So I, I read the first module on perfectionism and Lorna came to visit me. She came every second day. We would talk on the, on the off days on the phone. She says, so what do you, you know, did they give you anything? And I said, well, they gave me this thing on perfectionism. I said, yeah, it doesn't apply to me. <laughs> she just smiled and said, maybe you should read that again. So then um, I had 
got that done, so I, I asked my nurse uh, Amy for some more modules. I, I think there's nine, I don't know, Ada, or somebody I'll introduce to you later, but she probably knows how many there is. Anyways, so I got two more modules on perfectionism and uh, self-compassion. And as I'm going, going through it, I, um, I got to this page, and y you were supposed to answer for you, and so I, I went through, and it was just like it jumped off the page at me. And I, I think it'll come up here next. So there was two areas that I identified with very strongly. That I, in my fear of failure, I must not fail, and I can't have others think poorly of me. Then under simplicity, structure, and control, I must know what's going to happen. Must be prepared for basically all possible outcomes. And I can't let anyone else do a task unless it goes wrong. So I brought that up to Dr. Cooper on January the 11th. And I said, I identify with this part of perfectionism in module two. And so she helped unravel this for me. She said, she started by saying, let me guess, Brian, when you were young, you woke up just ready to take on the world. You were just ready to go. I said, yeah, like every day in my life. And she says, well, that worked when you were young. That's called adrenaline. You became an adrenaline junkie. And when you had more work to do, well, you could respond to it and you could work harder and use that adrenaline to get, <coughs> get the jobs done. She says, now you're getting a little older. And when that, that project became bigger than you, well, that same adrenaline that worked for me was now working against me. Uh, I think, therefore, the high cortisol levels. And then she said, you know what? That other part of being in control, the, you are where you're at or you have to work with a team. You're no longer just you. You have to learn to change. You have to, you're, you're not, if you don't make changes, you will be back here. You will have a relapse. And so that got my attention. But I, I, I don't want to have to go through this again. Anyways, so understanding a little bit more of myself, I think that's just important. So on January 14th, I was released. And she definitely wasn't going back to work. I was a long ways away from that. And before I was released, Dr. Cooper asked me, what two things are you hoping for? And I, I was able to answer him. I said, I want to see May the 1st. I want to be able to laugh again. So we went up to Saskatoon. We rented a, an Airbnb, actually. We ended up being in two Airbnbs in Saskatoon. Now, this is getting to the, the good side of the story. All, all, all this is good. I got in to get help. It's good. But then it really starts to pick up the pace. Now I, so there's small steps, though. So 
one thing, when your mind gets going all over the place, you need to get in the present. That's a lot of like those anxiety things, getting in the present. So a really good thing to do, keep you in the present, do a puzzle. Well, we did 13 puzzles. Well, Lorna did 13, I maybe did 10. I don't know. And um, anyways, it w Lorna had decided to, she didn't really give you my input into where to go, and then she made a great call. We went to Saskatoon. We had, we had friends there and family, and so she would have support there as well, and, uh, and that becomes quite very, very interesting. In fact, when we got to the high-rise apartment that day, who was outside the apartment to help, help us in? It was Michelle and Lloyd. There they were, and they, they helped us move up to the 19th floor. When Lorna seen it was the 19th floor, I could tell that she was panicking. I said, you think I'm going to jump, don't you? She says, yeah. They stayed overnight with us. And uh, we got through that night, that, that first night. And uh, we stayed, and it, it was good. It was good. We did, um, so we were able to visit lots. We, uh, we timed it. We could make it to Lloyd and Michelle's place in eight minutes. And, uh, and we were able to spend time with them. We didn't maybe play a few games. We didn't do anything fancy. Few visits, and uh, but it was a it was a safe place to be. Pastor Louis he dropped by for a few visits, and and we uh, were able to you know just do some talking, and just just small steps. And all the time, my wife stood by my side. She di she didn't try to change me. She just stood there in the gap. And then we had a great surprise and. January 23rd, 27th, my sister Donna came. Now, what I'd like to say about Donna is everybody should have one, but you can't because she's mine. <laughs> Donna's a very special person. She's wise, she's kind, and she's contagi contagiously funny, even though she thinks she's not funny, but she's funny. And she just spent time with me, just shoulder to shoulder, building puzzles, we would talk some, and then she just encouraged me. She told me things like I should journal. I think I'd heard that word about three or four times before that. She just confirmed it again, I should journal. And then she told me I should maybe read a book by Dr. Brene Brown. So I did. Actually, I took Michelle's book, and then she had to buy a new one. And it's, it's called The Gifts of Imperfection. It only took me 14 days to read 137 pages. <laughs> it's not bad. I do need to reread it, but anyways, while Donna was there, Lorna kept these notes. I wasn't very good at journaling. While I was there, she wrote January 20, uh, the January 26th. No, sorry. I'm in January. Yeah. January 26th. Brian laughed until he cried. And he said, it felt so good. That was the first time I laughed. And it felt so good. 
And then Tegan and Riley, they gave me a, another sort of a puzzle, a 2,000 piece Apollo 5 Lego puzzle. That's about 30 hours of distraction right there, I'll tell you. It was great, it was awesome. They, they surprised my socks off. Um, just a second. On February 2nd, I was contacted by this girl named Cynthia Beck. She gave me some kind of title that she's a clinical psychologist. Dr. Cooper asked her to do some behavioral personality assessments or something. That's what's in my notes. I'm not sure if that's all her title or not. Anyways, we talked for two and a half hours. She got done. She says, Brian, I feel a lot of your situations or obstacles here is farm related. And so we talked about that a little bit. She talked about being involved with a, a program called Farm H. And uh, it stands for Farmers and Ranchers Mental Health. And she called back on February the 4th. She said, Brian, would you be okay if I gave your name to uh, our group, the Farm H group, they had money to sponsor farmers for some in-house sessions with a doctor in psychology, doctorate in psychology, Dr. Carver Hill. I said, sure. And she called back and she says, well, we'll, we'll sponsor for four of your sessions and we'll get you in while you're still in Saskatoon because this time we, by this time we knew we were gonna stay in Saskatoon for a while. And, um, and she, she's pretty persistent because counselors are booked up right to the hilt. And she got me in for four sessions every two weeks. And so I started on February 14th with Dr. Carver Hill at six o'clock in the afternoon. And um, so he went through some basic things too of, you know, things like, um, uh, grounding, which is like awareness, just, you know, being conscious of what's around you, being aware. And then he also talked about CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, which is what you think, what you do equals what you feel. And so he just gave me some material to read on, and, and so that was my first session. We, we went to Went from there, just now I'm going to catch up to a different, I've, I've kind of jumped ahead there on my story. Now I'm going to back you up to January 31st. Uh, we meet these people named Neil and Kareen Shantz. Very humble folks, and guess what? They're absolutely strangers to us. We'd been staying in an Airbnb, which is not, they're not that big, and the, wasn't the best, wasn't, the best for company. It would have been very difficult to have a family over. Anyways, we didn't know them. They're friends of Michelle and Lloyd's. And uh, they said, we would we'd be really happy if you stayed in our house. They'd go down south for a couple of months. And then Lorna had negotiated with them and 
She said, all they'll take for rent is if we clean off the snow, off the sidewalk. That's all they wanted. And uh, then when we, and then they looked at us and they said, we want you to use this house like it's your house. We want you to have people over here and we just empower you. They, they want us to eat the groceries and everything. <laughs> so we said, no, we, we won't do that. But anyways, these people we never knew before, never met. So we want you to take your, our house. And we did. We treated it like our own. So one of the big things in my journey back was on February 6th, my, I hadn't met any of, uh, Donna, I'd met, my family, I guess I'd met Cheryl and Val a, a little bit before that, but this is on Lorna's side of the family. Her brother, Cam, and his wife, Trish, they came for a visit. Now, I'm a little bit nervous and going, you know, what are they going to think? And are they, are they be mad? Or are they going to, you know? Anyways, it couldn't have been anything different than what it truly was. When they came in the door, Trish, of course, she gave me a gift, and then she gave me a big hug, and said, it's sure good to see you. Then Cam gave me a big hug, and then he said, I love you, Brian. And we just visited, I think, I don't know, two or three hours. It just seemed to fly by. It was so cool. And it was, we were in a, like a, as if it was our own home. We were just relaxed in the living room. And uh, all my concerns about stigma and disappointment were just smashed right there. This next one is the one that I, when you looked at that perfectionism thing, it, when I, one of my concerns was I'm very concerned that others thought about me. Of course, I, I would apply that most probably to the farmers. The farmers that I am, I am one, I, I, I kind of fit into their fraternity, and I think I learned a little bit. They're very, very gifted in what they do. But I was a farmer, and I'd, I didn't believe in mental health. I just meant I wasn't working hard enough. And I thought, the, they're going to think the same thing, and how are they going to treat me when I meet my first farmer? I was really concerned about coming home. We were still talking over how do we come home to the stigma, to the disappointment. February 19th came around, and it turned out Jake had a, a hockey tournament in, in Moose Jaw. Another step of being with more people again, and that was good, and going to see, see some family, Josh and Tamara's family. And never really thought about it too much, just being with people, and then we go into the rink, and then Karen, Karen Hebert came around. She was trying to settle down a grandchild. He was upset, and I thought, oh, no. I never thought. I'm sure Louie will be with her. See, we have a bit of a history that goes back really far. We go back to high school. I moved to Mooskin in grade 9, and I was in Karen's classroom then. I played football with 
with Louis in grade 10, 11. And then they went farming. They farmed all those years just like we have. And they're good farmers. They've worked hard. And I really, really, really respect them. Oh, boy. I guess we're going to find out how this goes. So their grandson had just played, and they were coming into the foyer, and we're the exchange of parents, so to speak. We're about to go on to watch Jake. And I thought, well, I, I'd rather get this over with than prolong it too long. So I, I spotted where Louie was. He never doesn't know that, but I picked out where he was, and I just kept scanning across there. Kept going. Yeah, he'll look at me sometime. And sure enough, our eyes met. And he paused. I just want to put it this way. He paused long enough. That I would put it this way, that he made a choice. But it was not a very long pause. And then he just started walking towards me. And I was, I was nervous, but he was coming straight towards me, and then I could see him about 10 feet away from me. Louis, whether you know it or not, you cry. Your lip was queer, queer, quivering a bit. And he came over, and he put his arm around me, and he said, Brian, we were cheering for you. We were thinking about you all along and praying for you. He says, it's so good to see you. I look back at Louis and I says, Louis, I am so good to be here, so glad to be here. And I'm so glad you came over. And that was such a huge step in my life. Uh, such a huge step in my journey to have a fellow farmer come over and say, you know what, I care about you. And I'm really glad that you're still around. I came home, and I went to see Dr. Carver Hill on February 28th. Well, I think he asked the question like, how are you doing? <laughs> That's about all I needed. I had to tell him the story about Karen and Louie. I, I mean, who couldn't? whole bunch of th other things had happened by then. We'd already made it. We'd talked to Tamara and Josh, and you know what? They were ready for the next step. They were ready to take on the role of responsibility to, to lead that seed plant charge. They, did. they could use us as a resource from a phone, visit some. They said, you know what? We want to buy you out on the, take over your shares on the seed plant. Lorna and I are at the seed plant. That all happens between January 14th and January 28th. Well, I think he maybe got a little bit of stuff he was trying to teach me in there, but I was, I was so busy talking, I was so excited. And anyways, and then it started happening. We had so, well, yeah, it's, it's all interwound in here. Remember that home that we were given? What Lorna and I ended up naming it was the House of Healing. Because guess what? 
every one of our kids, every one of our grandkids came to visit us there. So that bad situation that we had from, from Christmas, it was so much different. It was so much fun. And we laughed and we cried and we just did things together. And because we had that house, we had a place to, to be with people. And friends that we had over, Michelle and Lloyd, Pastor Louie and Jenny, and we got to be with them at church. And um, of course, Cam and Trish, we, we probably did seven or eight different things with them. And it's, it was so simple, it was so easy. Yeah, I, I wrote down here, after, after moving to the Shantz home, we pretty much visited with somebody every day. I once again was energized by people. I wasn't ready to go to bed, but I knew I had to. I couldn't wait until the morning. I was excited about living and living wholeheartedly. I have it written down here. I went back to my phone. I texted my sister Cheryl on March the 4th. I said... I had told, I had said before that it was going to be my worst year. The six, my 60th year was going to be my worst year. I said it is going to be my best, bestest year. Poor grammar, grammar intended. It was already changing that strongly already. I was just excited about living again. And on March the 4th, I could definitely answer that question. Do you want to get better? Absolutely. Absolutely, I just want to be the best version that God could make me be. Does that mean I'll be done? I'll never be done. I don't want to be ever lax again. I don't want to just think it just happens. I want to do whatever it takes to get better and to live life wholeheartedly and, and live it with no regrets. On March 14th, I went to Dr. Carver Hill for my third visit. And he, um, he let me talk again. I mean, I just mainly told him stories for the session. He gave me some more um, information on keeping up good habits. And then he said right at the end of the session, he says, I think we're done here. Oh, yeah, I'm just about done the session. Cutting off about five minutes early, but okay. And he says, no, I, he says, we're done here. You fired me. <laughs> now, Cynthia says that I, I graduated. He says, he says, I think I've done all I can do for you here right now. And he says, but I want you to just practice good things and share your story. He's someone else that said to share your story. And so I graduated from his class, I guess. And on May 1st, it was Sunday. I came to church. I wore my party shirt, which I'm wearing right now. And I was excited to worship and enjoy the day that I dreaded I'd never see. 
So there's so many people I want to thank. As I look across the room, I've got so many thanks to give. So <clears throat> first, I want to thank my wife, my friend, my rock, and my lover. For friends, so many friends, they just checked in. They didn't try to pry or anything. When I have received the text, I didn't get my phone. I didn't use my phone again until March. She'd get texts like, we're believing in you. You were there for us, and I'll be there for you. I'm concerned about Brian. I don't need to know the details. I just need to know if he's okay. To my family, my siblings, which I have three of them here this morning, my three oldest, oldest sisters, by the way. <laughs> and um, they sent gifts. They sent words of encouragement. My brother, he just said, well, let's, let's just change the business plan. Let's do something different. And my, I often say this about my oldest sister, Adele. She sends me a positive text every day. And usually pictures with it. She's been down this road and she's got her PhD level at it. I'm still getting out of kindergarten. My in-laws that told me they love me. By the way, I never finished the rest of that story. <clears throat> when Cam and Trish went home that first night, when I came over and she says, do you, do you remember something that I never heard before tonight? Uh, and I said, uh, no, I don't know what you mean. She goes, I've never heard my brother say I love you. And he said it very loud, very clearly. That was very, very cool. It was good to see me and of course many, many hugs. It was family members that shared their mental health journey and told me I was important in their life. My kids and their families, they affirmed me, they loved me. They picked up the extra workload and ran with it. I encourage you to read their letters at the back. There's four letters. I get one from my brother-in-law, Darren. Lorna had given me these letters when I was in House 10. Oh, by the way, the Wayburn Mental Health Facility, they give it a, a warmer name called House 10. And uh, so House 10 is the place that I, I do value. Anyways, you can read those letters. If you're wondering what you could do for somebody when you affirm them and you, and you just tell them that you love them and you don't try to change them, I, I can't read them. If I was going to read them all out to you here, then I would be really blubbering. But at the time I read them, I had no emotion. I could even smile. But when I read them now, they're such a thing of joy and excitement. And strangers, they just gave us their house. And we call it, like I say, the house of healing. And to my fellow farmers, 
I see a few in here this morning. Thank you. Recognize, recognize that farmers have mental health issues too. We are in a high-stress environment, and we need to support each other. And of course, the mental health professionals. They have a passion and gifts to help, and they are equipped. They dedicated their lives to helping others. Reach out to reach out to them. They will. They will make a difference. I can honestly say I was a doubter. Not anymore. We need to educate ourselves, and practice well, and ask for help. There's people that need you too. Let's try to create a community where people can share without being judged. You can be the salve and not the sliver. You can help be part of the healing. And where you, where it gets beyond you, just point them to the resources and professionals. <clears throat> I want to close. Oh, by the way, I was going to say that my dad being a preacher I'd like to have had him here this morning. Anyways, to see I'm going to be 60 years old and this is my first sermon and my last. <laughs> and who would ever guess that I'd do my first sermon on something that I didn't even believe in. So. But I want to I want to finish with this. This is taken from the message the Bible, Message Bible, in Matthew 25, verse 36 to 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Enter, you who are blessed by my Father. Take what's coming to you in this kingdom. It's been ready for you since the world's foundation. I was, and here's why. I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was homeless, and you gave me a room. I was shivering, and you gave me clothes. I was sick, and you stopped to visit. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then those sheep are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? And when did we ever see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will say, I'm telling you the solemn truth. Whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. And that's my story where I, and I want to say thanks. Whether you realized or not, you are God's hands and feet, and you did it to me. And you spoke into my life, and you got me through what I would say was the darkest time of my life. And I just want to thank you. And I know my journey's not done, 
and say, I don't think we're ever finished. All we can do is try to get better. And uh, so thank you very much. And uh, so I talked to Pastor Matt. It's okay. I didn't answer that. So I talked to Pastor Matt, and they took it to the council. And, and so I'd asked if we could have this as a fundraiser for Farm H. So the, for the uh, farmers and ranchers' mental health. Uh, and um, he said yes. And so instead of me trying to describe it, I'm going to ask Cynthia Beck to come up. Now she's my counselor, and she is the best. <laughs> Give her a round of applause. <laughs> She too wants to graduate me and I don't want to leave, but anyways, <laughs> anyways, uh, so I'll let you tell what it's about. Thank you. Do you have those resource pages? Perfect. So uh, thank you everybody and thank you Brian for sharing your story. Uh, so I too am a farmer. Uh, I'm also working towards my clinical psychology graduate degree. Um, at an age when <laughs> most people are actively planning retirement. Uh, so I'd like to thank Brian for asking me to come here today. Uh, I'm also a researcher, and so I work with two different research teams. One is with the online therapy unit uh, at the University of Regina, and um, my research was to develop a program for online therapy to be available to the agricultural population. Uh, and so you can see the website there, onlinetherapyuser.ca. I also wanted to tell you about uh, the Saskatchewan Polytechnic Farmer and Rancher Mental Health Initiative. And so we're a group of researchers that come from different areas. Uh, I'm a farmer and a researcher and have a mental health background. Uh, there's other ones who are nurses, uh, who are also cattle ranchers. There's a grain farmer involved. And so what we wanted to do was to start researching how farm culture impacts our ability to seek help. And when Brian, I kind of had to chuckle Brian because for a lot of farmers, um, like I hear them talk and say, well, mental health, pff, like that doesn't apply to me. Well, mental health is a lot like physical health, right? It's on kind of a continuum. So you could have really, really fantastic physical health where if somebody said to you, hey, are you going to go, you know, run a marathon or go in a rickshaw race of some kind, whatever, right? And you have the ability to do that. Then there's me who, if you said, Cynthia, we need you to run a marathon, well, you'd pick me up at the end of kilometer one going, nine one one, you know. But I still have enough physical health to get me through my daily functioning to do my job on the farm and to do my job elsewhere. But then there's the opposite side of that where we don't have physical health and we really struggle, which impacts our quality of life. Mental health is the same way. You can have really, really challenged mental health and then you can have really fantastic mental health. And it swings back and forth, right? So if we can find a balance, then we're good. So the Farmer and Rancher Mental Health Initiative, uh, part of what we're doing is researching that farm culture to see how farm culture impacts our ability to ask for help, which it does, right? We, I, I don't know, I, I connect with Brian when he says he deals with perfectionism, yep. 
<laughs> um, or a lack of self-compassion or where you're kind of hard on yourselves. Yes, we do that. So also with the Farmer and Rancher Mental Health Initiative is we are trying to raise funds to pay for private therapy sessions for farmers and ranchers. Uh, and so there's a couple ways to do that. Uh, if you can go on the website, um, do you have the... It was there, that's okay. Um, if you go onto that saskpolytech.ca and search uh, Farm Age, there's a place for you to donate online and we are a charitable uh, organization so you do receive tax receipts. Um, and I believe that there's also, if for people who don't have internet access, uh, there is going to be some, something going around for people to donate if they wish. Uh, and Pastor Matt um, and Brian have been gracious enough to organize this where your money will go towards uh, the Farm H program so that other farmers and ranchers can receive private therapy services as well. So I just wanted to share these. These are available to anybody. The Canada Suicide Prevention Service, you can text or call uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's lots of great information. Um, Perfect. The Agricultural Health and Safety Network, uh, they have some really great videos on there. Um, you'll hear me yakking on a couple of them. Uh, the Canadian Mental Health Association, there's the Farm Stress Line, uh, and then the previous one. Thank you. Uh, can you go to the first one? There. And then 211, a lot of people don't know about 211, which is very similar to 911, but 211 is for mental health services. Uh, 211 is available in every province and every territory in Canada. It's funded by the United Way and our federal government. And you can call them, you can text them, or you can go online, type in your postal code, and it'll bring up all of the services that are available to you. So this is available to anybody. Uh, and I really encourage people to kind of do some searching for themselves. Because like I said, I, I mean, we're not always in top physical condition. And we don't all, we're not always in the top of our game mental health-wise. So mental health is not only mental illness. You have mental health regardless of how you're doing, how challenged or, or whether you're flying high and doing fantastic. Does anybody have questions? Thank you. If you have any questions for Cynthia, I will encourage you to grab her after service is done. Um, or I will also say that if you, if anything that Brian, well, before I get ahead of myself, I think a round of applause for Brian sharing is more than appropriate. <laughs> I know he was very excited, but it's still very hard to share some of that stuff. And so we thank Brian very much for sharing uh, and being open and just transparent about everything that he went through. Uh, there are a few guys that have been asked to help take up. If you would like to give to Farm Age this morning as a special offering and you've got some cash on you that you want to throw in, uh, I'm going to get the guys to come up, whoever they are. They're all being super shy now all of a sudden. Oh, there we go. We haven't done this in like two years, so uh, this is new territory. Um, so yeah, if you have some cash or something that you want to throw in the offering plate, uh, we'll just collect it, count it up, and we will send uh, um, a one big check to Farm H. If you want to give digitally, you can go to Farm H, that, search it up on the Polytech site. You guys can go. Go 
do your thing. Um, you can look it up. Give There's electronic giving on the site. Um, but I don't want to close with this. If you have been stirred by anything that Brian said over the course of his story and you need someone to talk to, um, I am not an expert, but I would love to talk. I love to sit down with you and just help, just listen. I'm a good listener. Um, I am not, like I said, I'm not an expert, but I love to pray with you. I'd love to just help in any way that I can. And if you need more help than I can offer, uh, obviously we have Cynthia um, here as well. Uh, and we will exchange information so that we will have her as a resource here at the church. Um, but our heart here at One Church is to help. We're here to help. And so, uh, yeah, we don't want you to, don't leave. If you feel like you need to talk to somebody, if you feel like you need to share with somebody, please do not run off and without talking to somebody first because we're here. We're not running anywhere. I got myself. We've got Pastor Darren here as well. And so, uh, yeah, we would love to talk with you. Um, but to everyone who is a special guest, we're so thrilled that you have joined us this morning. Uh, we do have welcome gifts and we had a really cool thing happen uh we ran out a welcome gifts before service so we made a whole bunch of special ones just for you so if you were, this is your first time ever at one church uh we have something that says thank you for coming out we're so blessed that you were here to join us this morning uh but i'm going to pray and i'm going to wrap it up um heavenly father i thank you god for this morning god i thank you again for brian and his willingness to share and the journey you took him on, and we're so glad that uh, you have brought him to this space where he is excited for life again. He's excited, and he's willing to share. And I pray, God, for everyone here that has heard the story, that if there's something that has stirred in you, that, God, that you would speak to that, that you would be a comfort, that you would be an encouragement, and uh, may you not miss the opportunity to speak life where maybe there is struggling and... Uh, Jesus, we love you. We give you all our praise and thanks. Bless everyone as they go about their day. In Jesus' name, amen.